Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. We are here today with Christopher Close, Associate Professor of History at St. Joseph's University in the incomparable city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to talk about his latest book, State Formation and Shared Sovereignty, the Holy Roman Empire and the Dutch Republic, 1488 to 1696, out this year, that's 2021, with Cambridge University Press. Hello, Chris, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Yana. It's uh, lovely to be here. I feel like I should start with yo or something like that with that introduction <laughs> for, uh, for Philadelphia there. Yo. Yeah, how do you feel about ice skate or uh, hockey or so I'm, I'm, eagles? So uh, I grew up uh, north of Chicago, so I unfortunately am a Bears fan uh, and a Blackhawks <sighs> fan, um, which was good about a decade ago for the Blackhawks, not so much right now. Uh, but both my kids are born and bred Philadelphians, um, and so they feel a little bit more kinship for the Philadelphia teams than I do. Man, that's tough. That's There's nothing you can do, though. I'm sure you've done everything else as well as you could. <laughs> yeah, so um, I, and I'm, I'm a Red Wings fan. I'm a Detroit sports fan. Oh, so yeah. we are the mortal enemies right there. And the Blackhawks are a cute little team. Yeah. They had some good success. Well, you know, when, um, when they switched the Red Wings over into the different conference, um, that was uh, very disappointing from the Blackhawks' perspective because that was always the the funnest games every year were, were when the Blackhawks would play the Red Wings. Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, wow. The Blackhawks fans really hate the Red Wings. <laughs> it's it's and one more thing to love about Chicago. Um, let's see. So St. Joseph's is a Jesuit school, yeah? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You're part of a proud, long historical tradition there. Yeah. So, you know, St. Joe's is a, is a Jesuit university, part of the Jesuit University Network. I think there's 27 of them uh, in the United States. Um, and we're kind of uh, smack dab in the middle there as far as size goes uh, among them. Uh, it's a great place to be. Um, there's amazing support for research here. And I think what you pointed to about the, his- the tradition of historical studies, and particularly the historical studies of early modern Europe, which, of course, is where the Jesuits come from, or they originate in, in the mid-16th century, um, has been really prized at many Jesuit universities, and particularly at, at St. Joseph's University. We have an endowed lecture here named for a medievalist and, and early modernist who came before me. Uh, and I've always had great support from the university for, for the work that I do. Um, and one of the great things about being at a Jesuit university is that people are actually interested in taking courses on early modern Europe. Uh, my Reformation course, my history of the Reformation course always fails, always has students in it, uh, and they're always really interested in learning the material. So for, for being a, a religious historian of early modern Europe, it's a great place to be. 
Oh, that's magic. Yeah, you don't you don't get that everywhere. I I think it's. I mean, I I just don't think the general public understands just the devotion the Jesuits have to learning writ large. Right? It's a, a wonderful. My first job was at a Jesuit school at Marquette, and uh, I was sad to leave. Yeah. I will tell you. Yeah. Um, it's also. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of jokes we could make about um, getting to work that closely with with the old priests, which is just neat. <laughs> Yeah, and it, you know they, we still have uh, I think you know ten to fifteen Jesuits actually on campus. Um, some are young, some are older, and and you know in the process of retiring or have retired. Um, and they're brilliant. I mean, they're absolutely amazing, and the students absolutely love them. Uh, we had unfortunately a, a Jesuit who was an art professor pass away about a year ago at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. It wasn't from COVID; it was from a different issue, um, and just the outpouring of affection from the student body uh, was was really overwhelming. Um, and so it's one of the things that makes us unique and kind of gives us a cool identity. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, wonderful. All right, let's get to this book. So the first thing I want to do is situate this current work in your like integrator intellectual trajectory. Um, so your first book was The Negotiated Reformation, Imperial Cities and the Politics of Urban Reform, also from Cambridge. And then, uh, you know, this I'll just mention a smattering of your articles. Zurich, Augsburg, and the transfer of preachers during the Schmalkaldic War, estate solidarity in the empire, Charles V's failed attempt to revive the Swabian League, the Diet of Worms in the Holy Roman Empire, etc. So we can see this ongoing interest in power, specifically like the negotiation of power between all sorts of players, mm-hmm. um, royal, imperial political power, the reforming power of the church, smaller states, um, other corporate bodies. So the the current book is definitely in this vein, but it, it takes some other turns as well. So I mean, I'd like to know more about this. How did you choose to write this book? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think you laid out really well what, what I've been interested in my whole career, and that is interactions between uh, individuals and corporate bodies of individuals. So interactions between city councils, that was really the, the core of the first book. And I came to those questions initially with a major curiosity for the, for the first book as to why people cho- made the choices they did during the Reformation. Why would people choose to follow uh, the new ideas, whichever new ideas they, they were following? Why would they choose not to follow those ideas, to remain true to the Catholic Church? And those questions really spun the first book. And in the process of doing the research for the first book, uh, I came across all these different alliances that these uh, city councils were part of. Some of them are well known. You mentioned the Smokaldic War, this wonderfully Germanic name. Uh, I had a, a, a colleague of mine who once said, you know, it's been a great semester when you mentioned the Smokaldic War or the Smokaldic League in it. Um, and so I came because the Smokaldic League is very well known. It's this major alliance of Protestant powers in the empire. There's a war fought with the emperor in the 1540s. So very well known. But I came across a bunch that were not known really by anybody at all, maybe one or two local German historians. And this really piqued my interest. And, and so I wanted to look at these for the second book. And then as I started to look at them for the second book, I realized that I couldn't write about just these three or four alliances that nobody knew about because they fit into a much larger tradition um, that was not just part of the Holy Roman Empire, but part of all of Northern European political systems is what I was finding. And so from there, the projects, you could kind of say spiraled out of control to include um several centuries of alliances in the empire, and also then to bring in territories on its edge, in particular uh, the Low Countries, 
uh, in the, the provinces in the north, the Dutch-speaking provinces in the north that become the what's known as the Dutch Republic of the United Provinces of, of the Netherlands. So it was really kind of out of this interest of the way in which uh, different political powers interacted with each other, the way they negotiated the introduction or non-introduction of religious reform, that, that this interest in the alliances and how alliances facilitated or hindered these types of interactions grew out of. All right. So I know this book addresses the Holy Roman Empire and the Dutch Republic, right? From the late 15th to mid 17th. We got that. And, and I realize this question I'm about to ask you invites tautology on some level, like, because it's what I do, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and just go along with me. Okay. So, but why study state formation in this region at this time? Like yeah. what makes this a good place and good time for this study? Yeah. So what, Part of it is that, you know, I'm, I'm a historian, uh, a German historian primarily, and historian of the Holy Roman Empire. So that's where I am. That's where we're kind of my source material has been and where I've been thinking. But if you look at the historiography, so, so the way in which past historians have written about the way in which the Holy Roman Empire and what then becomes the German speaking states developed, uh, and also the way in which the states in the low countries, so modern day Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands and, and outlying regions that are now in France and, and Germany. If you look at the way past historians have written about that, they've written about both of them in very similar ways. And they've written about them as these kind of weird anomalies that traditionally the focus has been France, England, to some extent Spain, right? These are the models of European state formation. These, this is where the national state of the 19th century comes from. The Holy Roman Empire, this weird agglomeration of hundreds of different territories, the Dutch Republic, well, they're a republic, they're kind of weird anyway, and they're hyper-capitalist. These two things are seen as anomalies that don't make a lot of sense. And in the 19th century, historians in both the Netherlands and in Germany picked up on these ideas and basically argued that the early moderns, so the 15th, 16th, 17th century incarnations of their countries were these kind of backward places that inhibited the growth of a great national state. And that this had finally been achieved in the 19th century, but the reason they weren't as powerful as the French or the English was because of this early modern past. And so in, in thinking about reassessing our understanding of how states actually formed in the early modern era and what influence it then had on the 19th, 20th, and into the 21st century, these two places seem to me perfect places to go um, because of the way in which in the past they've been discounted. But now in the last 30 years, they've kind of been held up as models for the European Union, right? So there's been this flip in the way people have thought about them. So for me, that historiographical background seemed a perfect place to go to investigate these questions. Sure. And so you contribute to this development of like uh, different state developments, that discourse and historiographical discourse. But there's also something you say about the development of the Reformation, right? There's a lot to speak to the Reformation here. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And as, as a, a so my training is primarily as a Reformation historian. The first book is clearly a, a book about the Reformation. It's even in the title. Right. Um, and so for me, that's where I kind of came to this project. And I think the way in which these uh, various alliances and the way in which the interactions between authorities shaped the process of reform, shaped the way people understood reform, is absolutely essential and something that we as Reformation historians need to incorporate into our understanding. And one of the really important things for me in this project was trying to understand how political authorities of different confessional affiliations, so Lutherans, Calvinists, Catholics, and so on, how they attempted to work together even as their religious differences were unbridgeable, 
right? What mechanisms did they use to create this? How did they try to use alliances either to create ways for them to work together, create safe spaces to collaborate or to create boundaries where they were clearly set off from others, uh, from from uh, authorities of other confessions uh, for whatever reason that they wanted to. So I think you're absolutely right to point to the fact that for me, the incorporation of the Reformation, religious ideas and religious developments is really key to understanding not just these alliances, but the Reformation writ large and, and state formation writ large. Mm-hmm. Sure. One of the things you point out here that was one of the things that I really helped, that was really nice for me to reconsider my like larger narrative of this period was that I went into this, I've just wandered around my life, assuming, you know, as you say, the inevitability of the triumph of the larger states, that the early modern state formation is about the is about centralization, the it all leads up to an absolutist monarchy, things like this. And I I really had to reconsider, like, this is a flawed story. And you, you tell this, you know, you really set me straight on that. And all of us historians. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because that is um, one of the main goals of the book. And it, it's not to say that centralized states or institutions, that bureaucracies within states, that they're not important. They absolutely are. But that the story of early modern state formation is insufficient without them and that not every place develops this way. And in fact, that if we look at the 19th and 20th centuries, they are in many ways an aberration from what comes before and what may be coming now and what may be the cause of a lot of political upheaval in the Western world right now uh, is a kind of lurching movement or attempt in some quarters to move away from what we thought states were in the 19th and 20th century and then potential resistance to that. So one of the goals of the project was to open up what states were like, the variety that they showed, the variety of influences that shape them, uh, and then also hopefully to get historians and political scientists thinking about the way in which those impulses may very well be continuing to this day. It may still be influencing the way in which uh, political activity and political interactions happen, especially in the Western world. All right. Yeah, interesting. It was the, that debate. Are we watching the death of the nation state? Have we been watching that happen since the 90s? It's very interesting. And this book ha- casts a new light on thinking about that. All right. I'm an historian as well, as you know. So, of course, I want to hear about your sources. Yeah. Um, what did you What did you use? What's What's in here? So everything for me starts with the, the archive. Uh, and of course, the archive is problematic in, in some ways, right? It is artificial in some ways. But uh, especially for the type of history that I write, religious and political history, uh, the archive is just essential uh, and it's super rich. And so I worked in in archives all over southern Germany, Ulm, Munich, Nuremberg, uh, Bamberg, Augsburg, uh, and collected uh, hundreds uh, into the thousands of folios of material on these different alliances. One of the challenges of working with these alliances in the archive is just to take one, the Protestant Union, which is an alliance of Protestant political authorities in the Holy Roman Empire, founded in 1608. In one archive, like at one point, there's 27 different members of this alliance. And in one archive, the the state archive in Nuremberg, uh, for the city of Nuremberg, which is one of the members, uh, for one alliance member, there are 117, I believe, um, folders worth of documents related just to this alliance. And each folder of documents has something between 200 and 500 folios in it. Uh, that's just one member. Right. So you get a sense of the volume of material that is out there on this. 
Um, so that was a challenge, working with the archival materials, and I really had to choose what to focus on. Um, but one of the things I also really wanted to do with this book was widen beyond the archive and widen beyond the types of sources that I'd worked with for the first book, letters, official pronunciations, city council minutes, records of negotiations, and these types of things. Uh, so I worked a lot with published pamphlets, especially uh, for the Dutch. Uh, a lot of the source material, primary source material I have for the Dutch case comes from published pamphlets because there's a huge publishing industry in in uh all over the Low Countries, in the Netherlands, and then in, in the Southern Territories as well. So I worked a lot with uh, published uh, pamphlets, uh, and I also worked with uh, more popular material like songs. Um, so kind of published uh, uh, popular songs that were sung, some that were published, some that were written down, uh, which surprisingly to me incorporated in many ways a lot of these alliances. Um, and so you would get kind of popular songs in the 1530s that would mention the Swabian League uh, and, and its activities in relationship to the Peasants' War, right? Or in relationship to throwing a, a duke out of one territory in southern Germany. Uh, that was really surprising, but it was also a lot of fun because working with uh, kind of popular sources like that is very different than working with, you know, letters being sent back and forth between different diplomats or so on. So I, this project in particular, I tried to draw on an array of different sources that kind of pushed me into new territory. You can see that too, that you, you're speaking, I mean, it's about the negotiation of power and you can see that you're speaking to um, kind of a, a much broader idea of what power means here than I think we would traditionally assume from kind of a political and economic history. Um, wow, this seems like a tough book to write. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, yeah, it yeah. was. Um, you know, we... we talking a little bit before it took me the project. I've been working on the project for 12, 12 and a half years now. Um, when it finally came out in uh, February, 2022, uh, 2021, excuse me. Um, it just feels like it's been multiple years, I guess, because of COVID. Right? <laughs> it came out in, in February, 2021, 12 years, been working on it. And it was the type of project where nobody had ever written uh, a book like this that did uh, a comparative history over the course of several centuries of these alliances. Most people, many people have written on these alliances before, but they tend to focus on one, maybe two, because both exist at the same time. But really, they're focuses of one individual alliance. And I didn't want to do that. I really wanted to write the longer story of this, the comparative history of this, in order to identify things that other scholars couldn't see because they were just focused on one. And I was warned multiple times by both German and American academics at the start of this project. Don't do it. Nobody's done this. There's a reason nobody's done this. Um, but I just went ahead and did it. And then about six years in, I realized why nobody had written this. Um, but at that point, I was six years in and there was no turning back. So, so I just kept going forward. Uh, but it is one of those things where there's so much material out there on all of these. And it involves so many different debates. It involves so many different time periods. And it involves so much past scholarship in four or five different languages in order to do it, um, that it was one of those things where at moments it could become overwhelming. And, and skills I had to, to learn was, for instance, before I started this project, I could not read Dutch at all. Right? I, had, oh. I had basically uh, a German understanding of Dutch where I could kind of look at it and see what was there, but I really couldn't. So um, I took a course uh, through the City University of London on reading early modern Dutch, which enabled me to read the, the early modern documents in Dutch and also enabled me to read the modern Dutch scholarship. So that's just one example of the types of things that, that I had to do for, for the project, which is one of the reasons why it took so long to complete. 
Okay, I just want to like, I want to make sure we sit for a second on the idea that just one of the skills you had to pick up before you could do anything else was learning what has been, in my experience, a really horror show of a language. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> you know, I had a colleague at Iowa, um, Iowa State, lovely man, who does modern stuff. And he was telling me one day about like how overwhelming it is to do modern history because they have so much stuff. And he said, for instance, I have a whole banker's box full of letters. And I was like, oh, bless your heart. That is adorable. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, thousands of pages. And yeah. Terrible handwriting. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one of the things with working with uh, archival documents, you mentioned the handwriting is, uh, so for the first book, I worked with documents basically over the course of 30 years, from roughly 1520 up to, to 1550. Um, and, you know, you would get different scribes in different places. The handwriting would change. You would have to then, I always, I call it, read yourself into the document, right? Mm-hmm. Where you just got to yeah. get used to the way in which the letters are formed. But they're all working with the same basic alphabet, right? So the way they make the letters is very similar. They're all working with the same physical items. So they have the same quills they're using. They have the same type of ink they're using, minor variations, but it's all very, very similar. That is not true when you're working with documents written in the 1480s and documents written in the 1690s. There are radical technological changes. There are radical writing changes that happen in there. So that was another major challenge of of writing this book from an archival perspective, right? And working with primary sources, not, of course, there's tons of secondary source work in the book, but it's not a synthesis, right? It is really a, a primary source driven work is you have to become familiar, not just with the way the language changes, but the way in which the actual physical writing changes and the way in which the writing implements that they use changes, because that affects the way in which letters are formed. It affects the way in which the the paper that they're using um, is different and takes the the ink and takes the the, uh, letters on there. So there are a lot of things that, you know, you don't necessarily think about in grad school or you don't think about when you begin a project like this, that become skills that you have to Mm-hmm. if not matter, at least become conversant with uh, simply to, to do the work. Yeah. And, you know, you can kind of run out of like, you, you can fall away from it too. Yeah. I don't, I'm not in the archives for six months. I go back in and there are these documents that I was reading, like yeah, the, my own handwriting. And then it takes me two days yeah. to know what they're even saying anymore. Yeah. But I mean, that's why it's fun, yeah. right? Yeah. If not, anyone could do this job if it weren't for that. <laughs> For that, also not true. Um, all right, so we've got the Holy Roman Empire, which is this enormous collection of multi-ethnic and multilingual states um, that kind of formed in the eighth century after a fashion and continued for about a thousand years, um, primarily in Central Europe. And then the Dutch Republic uh, is a is a different beast and a little little trickier. So, what? Tell me about the Dutch Republic as you understand it. So the Dutch Republic is this uh, state that emerges in uh, roughly, it's not entirely uh, uh, what the modern day Netherlands is, but it's roughly in in that area. If we think about where the modern day Netherlands is, it's in that area. And it emerges in the second half of the 16th century out of a revolt of the entire Low Countries. It involves the whole Low Countries against uh, their Spanish rulers, which at that time what's called the 17 provinces of the Low Countries or the 17 provinces of the Netherlands is another term they use all the time, is part of the Spanish uh, patrimony. And we can talk about how how it gets there if you want. Um, For a whole variety of reasons uh, that have to do with religious and political 
tensions between the Spanish uh, and many people in uh, in the 17 provinces, a revolt begins in the 1560s that really evolves into a civil war in the Low Countries. And out of this civil war, the seven northernmost provinces, uh, roughly again the modern day Netherlands, uh, create an alliance together in 1579 called the Union of Utrecht, um, and they create this alliance to kind of pool resources in their resistance against what they see as Spanish tyranny. Of course, the Spanish see it very differently uh, than, than the Northern Dutch do. Um, and out of this alliance that they form, the Union of Utrecht, this state, the Dutch Republic, evolves, which is uh, decentralized. Each of these provinces had their own individual rights and privileges that they fiercely protected. And this is one of the reasons why they don't like the Spanish, because they feel the Spanish are trying to take these privileges away from them. And there's nothing a Dutchman or Dutch woman hates more than someone taking their privileges and rights away. Um, so they are it's decentralized in that each of these provinces have their kind of own rights and their own spheres of activity, but they have a, a centralized parliament, we could say, in the states general. And there's also this amorphous position that's called a stockholder, which is a kind of governor or so on, but not a governor. It's really is kind of amorphous position that they fight over a lot what the responsibilities of this are. And so what emerges out of this alliance is then this this republic of these seven provinces um, that looks, at least on the surface, very different than a lot of other places in Europe at the time. Uh, and it becomes in the 17th century one of the richest and in many ways most politically influential state, uh, not just in Europe, uh, but in the world. Right. I mean, the Dutch end up in the 17th century, uh, especially after they gain independence, formal independence in 1648. Uh, they are spread all over the world, uh, create a trading empire all over the world. Uh, and the Dutch Republic becomes for many people a symbol in the, or the, in the early modern world. They can be a symbol of the potential of a political organization, but they also become a symbol of the dangers of non-aristocratic rule, right? Um, uh, the dangers of breaking with past traditions, the dangers for many people of uh, not being pure enough religiously, whatever position, uh, whatever religious position one may take, be it a form of Protestantism or, or Catholicism. So the Dutch Republic really becomes this, this, this unique in some ways. But one of the things I'm arguing in the book is that the way it develops and the way it actually operates is not as unique uh, as we have thought in the past, uh, because it is really drawing on a lot of traditions that are pan-European or at least pan-Northern European. Right on. Um, yeah, and so let's get to that because there's a whole bunch of other bodies at the table, and let's talk about those. And um, you know, a non-specialist is going to learn <laughs> will not have any idea about this. And uh, I, I'm going to admit I learned so much reading this book. There, I had never heard of a few of these, and I don't feel particularly bad about that. Like I don't feel like there was a huge hole in my uh, in my learning, in my education about the early modern period. But um, oh man, there's so much material here. All right. So, like, let's start out with our friends in the Swabian League, which is something I think a lot of everybody knows about. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about it, the Swabian League. Who are they? So what are they the, doing? The uh, the Swabian League is this major alliance uh, formed in 1488 uh, among the in the empire. The members of the empire are called imperial estates. That's the name given to them. So uh, these various estates are kind of semi-autonomous, but they're all united together in pledges of loyalty to the emperor and the empire. 
1488, uh, dozens of these estates in the South German lands, modern day Switzerland, uh, Southern Germany and Austria, uh, joined together in an alliance to protect what they call the public peace. And the public peace is this idea within the empire that different estates shouldn't take up military arms against each other. Instead, they should find peaceful ways to resolve their conflicts. Because after all, we are all united together in the empire. We shouldn't fight with each other. Uh, and so we should try to preserve this peace. Um, this didn't always work out very well in practice. And there's multiple instances in the book where I show how it didn't work out in practice. So one of the really important things that these alliances that they formed did was try to preserve the peace. Uh, and they did that by joining these different estates together and kind of pooling military resources where, OK, so maybe this duchy uh, is vulnerable to attack. But if the duchy joins together with 28 other authorities and they all pledge to come to support that duchy, if it's attacked, then no one's going to attack it or the chances of it being attacked are, are uh, much smaller than before. It's kind of the principle that modern day NATO operates under or any military alliance in the modern world operates under. And the Swabian League uh, doesn't invent this. It is drawing on a lot of alliances in the late medieval empire that are doing similar things. But the Swabian League is the biggest one to do this. Uh, it is the one that becomes the most important. And crucially for the Swabian League, it brings together authorities from a whole different, uh, from a whole variety of different perspectives. So it's not just major rulers like dukes or or princes or prince electors in the empire. Uh, it's also cities and local noblemen and some knights and with these things called imperial abbeys, which are monastic institutions that are politically independent within the empire. They're not subject to a ruler; they kind of rule themselves. Um, so it brings together these larger, medium-sized, and smaller states, and it brings them all together in a cooperative framework that for the members of the Swabian League uh, is supposed to symbolize the way in which the empire itself should operate. And so the Swabian League kind of sets this standard that, at least within the empire, all subsequent alliances, and there are dozens of them, as you mentioned, and, and I wouldn't feel bad about not knowing them because many of these I didn't know before I started the project as well. Uh, but all of these subsequent leagues look back on the Swabian League as the model that they want to emulate. And a lot of the history of alliances in the empire in the 16th and 17th century, even into the 18th century, is a debate over what the Swabian League meant how it operated, and how we can recreate its greatness, however that greatness is defined. Okay. Uh, it, it sadly goes the way of uh, the way of the dinosaur, the way of the dodo. Um, and it leaves a vacuum, right, at about the same time that Europe is in the midst of this major shakeup church-wise. So we see some attempts at alliance built on confessional division next, yeah? Yes. Yeah, so one of the things, so the Swabian League uh, collapses, dissolves in 1534. And one of the reasons it does dissolve in 1534 is because of the Reformation, because the members of the Swabian League become religiously diverse. There are uh, a whole variety of different Protestant perspectives within it. And then, of course, there are authorities who want to remain true to the Catholic Church. Uh, and they find that the structure of the Swabian League no longer allows them to cooperate. Essentially, their interests have diverged to the point where being in this alliance together doesn't make any sense. But they all liked the benefits that the alliance brought, the protection, right, and the power, and the negotiating power, negotiating as a group. So how do you recreate this now when you've got this big, to steal a line from Seinfeld, this big matzo ball out there, which is these different uh, religious affiliations, right? Uh, the answer that 
many, many estates on all sides of the religious debate find is to create alliances based around the protection, either around the protection of specific religious viewpoints. So a Catholic alliance to protect Catholic territories, a Protestant alliance to protect various Protestant viewpoints, or to create alliances where you try to neutralize the confessional antagonism, where you say, okay, any issue related to religion, this alliance has no authority over it. That's something that we as individual members deal with. We as a collective body in this alliance have no authority over each other when it comes to religious activity. Uh, And this is really important in the 1530s into the 1550s. And one of the arguments I make in the book is that this sets the context within which the kind of seminal agreement that's reached in the empire can happen, which is the Religious Peace of Augsburg in 1555, which if anybody remembers from their world history courses or, or Western Civ courses, right, sets up the standard that each ruler can choose whether to be Lutheran or Catholic within the empire. And one of the arguments I make is this is only understandable why they would ultimately agree to this if we look at what happens in the alliances, because it's within these alliances that they begin to pioneer these ideas of coexistence and neutralizing the religious question by essentially ignoring it and and cutting it off and putting it at the regional level. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so then what's the idea behind the Imperial League in the 1540s and 50s? So in, so one of the alliances formed after the, toward the end of the Swabian League um, is this uh, alliance called the Smokalic League, which is a, an alliance of a variety of different Protestant authorities uh, to protect uh, Protestantism. Uh, a whole, and there's a big debate about what Protestantism means within these ranks, um, but essentially to protect Reformed evangelical thought, as they uh, mention, as they term it. In 1546, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V goes to war with the Smokaldic League, and he defeats the Smokaldic League. In 1547, he takes the leaders of the Smokaldic League prisoner, uh, and he uh, initiates or puts forward a plan for reform of the empire that he calls the Imperial League. And essentially what he hopes to do is create an alliance to, to kind of reform the way in which the empire functions, to turn it into an alliance with the emperor at its head. All members of the Holy Roman Empire would then pledge uh, loyalty to the emperor within this alliance. The alliance would also incorporate the Low Countries, which at that time are controlled as part of his patrimony by Charles V. And so and the Low Countries are technically part of the empire, but their relationship is really complicated. They didn't pay taxes. They weren't subject to any of the uh, legal authorities or, or legislative authorities in the empire. So they're not really part of the empire, even though technically they are. This would have incorporated them firmly into the empire and made them part of this in this military alliance. So it's this attempt by Charles V to create an alliance that really joins together all of his patrimonial territories in northern and central Europe, while also creating a more centralized power for the emperor within the Holy Roman Empire. Needless to say, the estates do not like this idea. Uh, Protestants don't like it for a variety of reasons. Catholics don't like it for a variety of reasons. And in fact, the um, Charles has two allies, a Protestant ally and a Catholic ally, in the war with the Smokaldic League. Both of them feel betrayed by this idea of the Imperial League. And so they join together with a whole variety of other states to defeat this new league. And one of the arguments I make uh, about the Imperial League is that This shows us uh, several things. First, it shows us the way in which the importance that alliances had 
in the mental landscape of these political authorities, right? That Charles wants to reform the empire. How does he do this? He doesn't just impose himself like a monarch. He creates a league. He creates an alliance. That's going to be the way to reform the empire. And it shows the uh, for the those who defeated it, it shows their conviction that if this goes forward, yeah, it will work because we know how leagues work. We know what leagues can do. This would totally change what's going on here. We have to defeat this. Um, secondly, I think it also shows the way in which leagues could support but also undermine authority within territories and also within larger political systems like the Holy Roman Empire, where Charles because he goes the path of a league, needs the support of a majority of imperial estates. Leagues, alliances only work if its members join them willingly. So while there's great potential here for Charles, there's also great danger that if the rest of the estates don't go along with him, nothing's going to happen. And that's ultimately what ends up happening is the his idea collapses because nobody or very few actually want to go along with Charles. And those who do have very different ideas about how it should function. So it kind of encapsulates a lot of these various tensions. And uh, in thinking about the Netherlands, it shows the way in which the political development of the Netherlands uh, and the entire Low Countries is very closely tied in many ways to developments surrounding alliances within the Holy Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, this is a really interesting I, and a bit baffling, you know, that Charles V is trying to put together a league. Like, at what point, what more do you need? You're Charles V. Like, you've got everything. And so I feel like this is really demonstrative of the power, the historical pull, like the rhetorical power mm-hmm. of these sorts of organizations. So you can just see kind of what what role they must be playing in the political landscape, like the zeitgeist of ruling in this period. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that. And I think from the perspective of Charles, one of the things that that Charles is often misunderstood about is this idea that he is some type of proto-absolutist monarch who just wants to impose his will on on people. Um, Maybe to some extent in Spain, although newer research on him also calls that into question for Spain, but in the empire, that absolutely is not the case. Uh, He feels absolutely committed to the idea of the empire as this this agglomeration of different semi-autonomous states. He feels absolutely committed to uh, his authority as emperor, but also the idea that the emperor needs the active support of all the other political authorities in the empire to achieve anything. And much of the political story of the Reformation, the, the early Reformation during Charles's reign, is, is this tension, this tension between wanting in some way to impose one's will, but recognizing and feeling duty-bound not to do that in a way that we might expect a stereotypical absolutist monarch or someone who claims absolutist tendencies to do. And so this is this kind of weird moment that you point to where Charles is ascendant. He has defeated the French. He has defeated the Turks. He has now defeated the German Protestants in 1547. He could have, if he wanted to, tried to impose his will. But very quickly, his advisors and his brother, who is a kind of cool ruler in the empire at the time, write to him and say, don't do that. Because if you do do it, no one's going to go along with you and they're going to rebel and we'll be right back at square one. So the Imperial League is this attempt to kind of fuse the best of both worlds together uh, that ultimately doesn't succeed. But Charles does get something out of it, which is a clarification of the relationship of the low countries to the empire um, in this weird agreement that's called the what's called a variety of things in different languages. Burgundian transaction is the term I use, um, which really clarifies that. The low countries are, are related to the empire, but are not subject to any authority in the empire. 
and it kind of creates these 17 provinces formally as a political entity on their own under the authority of the House of Habsburg. And it is that context that then helps give rise to the impulses that lead to the Dutch revolt, ultimately to the Dutch Republic. So in many ways, without the Imperial League, the development of the, or without the failure of the the Imperial League, the Dutch Republic would not have developed in, in the way that it did. All right. So next league I want to ask you about, and I feel like I have this list of leagues, but the League of Landsberg. Yes. That is uh, one of my favorite leagues um, because it is, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning, it is a league that I had never heard about before and that most German historians that I talk to to this day have not heard of. They will hopefully know of it now that the book is out. Um, But the the League of Landsberg is an alliance uh, founded in 1556. It lasts all the way until 1598. So it lasts basically for the entire second half of the 16th century. It's based in southern Germany. Its leader is the Duke of Bavaria, but it includes multiple cities. The city of Nuremberg uh, is the most prominent one. The city of Augsburg is also a member. It also expands to include major princes from central Germany, like the Prince Elector of Mainz, uh, who is one of the the seven top princes in the empire. Um, It is founded to uh, enforce these major decisions passed by the main legislative body in the empire, the Imperial Diet, uh, they pass it in 1555. Uh, and then there's two, there's many, many major innovations this, this uh, diet makes, but two of them are particularly important. One is the religious piece that I mentioned earlier, this idea that it legalizes uh, Lutheran thought. Calvinism is under debate as to what people think about Calvinism, um, but it legalizes uh, Lutheran thought based on something called the Augsburg Confession, which is this kind of main confessional statement, this main statement of, of core ideas of Lutheranism. You can be uh, an adherent of the Augsburg Confession, or you can be an adherent of the old true faith, the old Catholic faith, as it's, as it's called. Um, so it does the religious piece does that. Then there's also this component that's called the Enforcement Ordinance. Uh, which is new regulations surrounding the public peace, new ways in which the empire is supposed to maintain peace between uh, different its different members. And the League of Landsberg is founded to enforce both of these things. And the idea of its members is that the central bodies in the empire cannot possibly allow us to implement the religious peace and implement these new public peace things uh, by themselves. They're not strong enough and people don't respect them enough. So we need this separate alliance that supplements these uh, imperial institutions that's, that works to enforce and introduce these imperial decisions in the empire's regions. And that really is the inspiration that leads to the League of Landsberg. And that's the reason uh, its members join it, is because they see it as this vehicle to enforce in, in their territories these two seminal agreements that have been struck that everybody likes, but many people are not sure how they're actually going to turn them into reality. Okay, let's get some questions and I, kind of some ways I want to put this in context, but let's go on to the Low Countries real quick. And we see the Union of Aras and the Union of Utrecht, uh, both of which try to manage confessional division in novel ways. Um, and they end up being really important in the long run. So what's happening there? So uh, as we talked about earlier with uh, the Dutch Revolt, the Dutch Revolt begins often dated to, uh, to 1566, where there is a major storm of iconoclasm across the Low Countries, especially in, in the southern regions, right? And I think this is one of the most important stories to tell about the Dutch Revolt is that it's called the Dutch Revolt, but it begins in what is modern day Belgium. 
uh, and much of the early fighting is in in modern day Belgium, right? So um, it is really a an uprising that incorporates the entire Low Countries, and over the course of the 1570s, um, increasingly reformed thought, so uh, school different schools of Calvinism. Uh, many members, especially in cities, in the central low countries and the northern low countries, increasingly become uh, dominated and led by these adherents of the Reformed Church. And the population's uh, conversion to these uh, varieties of Christianity uh, are increasing in these time periods. So there are increasing religious tensions uh, between those who want to follow this new faith and those who want to remain true to the old faith. But many of these people who are religiously divided, they both hate the Spanish and they both don't like what the Spanish are doing, especially after uh, 1576, when a Spanish army mutinies and basically burns Antwerp to the ground uh, in what is called the Spanish Fury. This kind of galvanizes resistance in many places, um, both among Catholics and Protestants. But the challenge they now face is, okay, so we don't like each other in the religious respect, but we have a political common enemy here and an interest in defending our rights. How do we possibly uh, resolve this issue? And the solution they come up with through a variety of different alliances in the 1570s is to devolve decisions about religion to the local provincial level, to make it an issue that is not talked about between different provinces, between different political authorities, but that is dealt with within the borders of each political authority. This decision leads to a split. It leads to a split uh, in the south, especially in the French-speaking territories, as you mentioned, with the Union of Arras, where um, many French-speaking uh, uh, provinces in the southern Netherlands see this as a betrayal of promises that Catholicism would be protected. They feel they no longer have common purpose with the northern Dutch-speaking provinces, and so they join an alliance that reconciles them with the Spanish crown in exchange for recognition of their provincial rights and liberties. Uh, and this alliance then forms the kind of local support for the Spanish among inhabitants of the Low Countries. In the northern part, uh, the Union of Utrecht evolves in 1579, which explicitly lays out in its treaty that um, all matters of religion are matters for provincial authorities. They will not be talked about between the provinces. No province can tell another province what they should do religiously, how they should practice, how they, what they should do, as long as you're not actively persecuting people of a different faith that may live in a different province. You can do whatever you want on the local level. Uh, and this idea of kind of devolving decisions about religion to the local level uh, becomes a core principle of the Dutch Republic. But it doesn't evolve in the Dutch Republic because people in the Dutch Republic feel like every religious viewpoint is equally valid and we should be so super tolerant, right? Those ideas develop later. It develops out of political necessity. And it develops because that's the only way they can actually form this alliance in order to fight against the Spanish. And since that alliance becomes basically the constitutional framework within which the Dutch state develops, this idea of the devolution of religious decisions to the local level becomes a core principle of the Dutch Republic. So we have this long line of, um, help me make sense of what's happening. We have this long line of alliances, organizations, and they lead to differing levels of security, prosperity, and they reflect kind of a political necessity or military necessity. Um, how, what, 
what's going to happen in the 17th century, right? Things are going to get dicey. I don't want to ruin the story for anyone, but, uh, you know, the first half of the 17th century is is messy, <laughs> largely preoccupied with war. So uh, I feel like this, your treatment really reevaluates how we get to the 30 years war. Um, can you, I'd love to hear your take on that. First yeah. of all, is that even a good question? Am I right on that? Is that a good interpretation? No, I, I think it's a, a great question. And I'm, I'm glad okay. you put the spoiler alert out there because I'm not sure people know there was a 30 years <laughs> war right in, in, the, in the early 17th century, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. That in, and this is you know, what I talked about earlier, things I didn't really know much about. Um, as a scholar of the early Reformation for, for the first part of my career and someone really uh, uh, situated in the first half of the 16th century, I, of course, knew about the Thirty Years' War. I knew about the alliances that were part of it, and I had taught it in classes, but I had not researched it any, in any serious way. And really, one of the most fun things that came out of this book for me, beyond learning to read Dutch, uh, was learning about the 30 years war and really engaging with debates about the 30 years war. Because I think as you point to one, as someone coming from the early 16th century, I bring a different perspective to it than scholars who spent their whole career looking at it. And two, by looking at this long buildup of alliances and the way in which they frame how the alliances in the 30 years war operated, it gives a totally different perspective on the impulses that lead to the war and uh, in particular, why the war developed as it did uh, in its first decade. And one of the things that really surprised me, so there are two main alliances in the Holy Roman Empire that feed into the start of the Thirty Years' War, and they are religious alliances. One of them is called the Protestant Union, which not surprisingly unites Protestant authorities together, Calvinists and Lutherans, and there are tensions surrounding that within the alliance, uh, but they are allied with each other. And then an alliance called the Catholic League, or the Catholic Liga is what I call it in here, because there's another, there's several other Catholic leagues. So I just took the, the Liga term, which is a kind of Latin-German term that's used for it, uh, and use that in the book to differentiate. So these two alliances are formed in 1608 and 1609, and one of the things that shocked me when I started looking at the archival documents for these alliances is that they constantly refer back to earlier alliances. They constantly frame what they are doing in the context of the Swabian League, the Smokaldic League, even the League of Landsberg, because the individual who leads the Catholic League, the Duke of Bavaria, was the leader of the League of Landsberg. And so this alliance holds a lot of sway in the Bavarian mentality. This is something nobody had ever written about before. People had written about both of these alliances, but nobody had ever written about the way in which the legacy, the history of past alliances really shaped and created the framework within which these alliances operated. And so one of the things that the kind of long-term approach I took revealed for me was the way in which the history of alliances was just as important for the way in which alliances at the time operated, um, as is understanding what's going on at the time that an alliance is actually operating, because they often viewed events that were happening in real time through this historicized lens and through their understanding of the failures and successes of past alliances. And this becomes particularly important at the start of the Thirty Years' War, because many people, uh, especially in the Protestant Union, look at the start of the Thirty Years' War and draw parallels to that war we talked about earlier in 1546 where the Protestant alliance was destroyed by Charles. And so many of them, for a variety of reasons, but for this one in particular, become really reticent to support radical action against the emperor in the early stages of the war because they fear the same thing happening to them that happened to their uh, ancestors and forefathers back in the 1540s. Mm. Um, so 
And then these alliances continue. So we, we have the, the first half of the 17th century is this ongoing process. The 30 years war which ends in uh, 1648 with the Treaty of Westphalia. Um, and so, but alliances continue to matter in the developments as post-Westphalia as well, yeah? Yes. So, and, and they matter in a variety of different ways. One of the things that happens over the course of the Thirty Years' War in the Holy Roman Empire is that alliances like the, like I've been talking about before, kind of like the Swabian League, modeled on the Swabian League. The Protestant Union and Catholic League, both are kind of modeled on the way in which the Swabian League operates. So they're, they're slightly different, but very similar to it. The same principles apply. These types of alliances really get discredited over the course of the Thirty Years' War. The Protestant Union collapses. It's, it's obliterated in 1621 in the early stages of the war when its leader is defeated by uh, Liga armies in Bohemia. Uh, the Union dissolves. There are attempts to create other Protestant alliances over the war. Um, none of them are really successful, and they all collapse within a couple of years. The Catholic Liga is hugely successful in the 1620s. It becomes the major military power in Central Europe, wins multiple victories in the battlefield, but it too is crushed uh, in the early 1630s by uh, Swedish armies under the command of Gustavus uh, Adolphus and then later on under the command of his uh, chancellor, Axel Oxenstierna. Um, and because of this, because of this, it's an amazing name. It's one of the greatest names that came across. Okay. Oxford Wolkenstein is just one of the greatest names that you're going to find in, in 17th century European history. Um, and one of the things that happens because of the difficulties, the challenges that these alliances face over the course of the war is that their model gets discredited uh, in the eyes of a lot of political authorities in the empire. So after the war, the Treaty of Westphalia gives authorities in the empire the right to make alliances both among themselves and with authorities outside of the empire, like the king of France or the king of Sweden or so on, um, is that alliances come back, but they come back in different forms. So essentially the principles of these earlier alliances are, are kind of reinvigorated, but the way in which the alliances operate are different. Um, but these principles continue throughout the 17th century. And in fact, they continue up to the end of the Holy Roman Empire um, in the Napoleonic era, one of the things I talk about in the final chapter of the book is this alliance from 1785 uh, among princes in the empire and um, the language they use, the ideas they're putting forward, the structures they're putting in place are would have been at home in, in 1485 as they are in 1785. So even though the way in which they operate, and I talk about this in, in the chapter, the way they change, the ideas remain important and the ideas continue to shape what I call the boundaries and opportunities for state formation in the empire up to its very end. In the Dutch Republic, the story is slightly different, but alliances remain equally important. In 1648, with the Peace of Westphalia, the Dutch Republic becomes formally independent. It had been effectively independent for decades before that, but it becomes kind of formally independent in 1648. And now the political authorities in the Dutch Republic have a big question on their hand because they've been fighting this what's called the 80 years war against the Spanish. So they've been fighting with, uh, with a truce in between, but nonetheless, they've been kind of on a war footing for 80 years. This alliance, the union of Utrecht had been the way in which they'd cooperated with each other, kind of pro provided the, the uh, foundation for their state, but now the war's over. So what do you do? How do we continue to operate as allied provinces when we have our own interests, our own desires, and that common enemy is no longer there? And so a lot of the political history of the Dutch Republic in the 1650s, 60s, and 70s 
is a running debate that is happening amazingly across all of society, right? Not just in in council chambers or so on. It's happening in the streets and in Amsterdam and, and Utrecht and everywhere. A running debate about what the Union of Utrecht means, how it should create a, uh, a structure for this independent Dutch state, and whether or not the actions that we are now undertaking in the 1650s and 1660s, whether or not those actions actually represent what the founders of the union wanted us to do. So in many ways, one of the things I've I've talked about with American audiences is in many ways, the Union of Utrecht becomes, for the Dutch Republic, like debates uh, American politicians and Americans have about the meaning of the American Constitution. And everything, every reform, every change to the Dutch political system has to be justified in some way on the basis of the Union of Utrecht. Does it really fulfill what the union wants? Does it actually match what the union framers wanted? If it doesn't and opponents will attack it as not, then it's not really practicable uh, to, to do. And so the union becomes not just the cornerstone of the republic, it also becomes the symbolic way in which people in the republic have debates about what their state should look like and what it should be. Mm-hmm. All right. Help me sum this up. Let's uh, let's let's take we're we're kind of we're through the progression of the book, and at the risk of sounding like somebody leading an HR summit, <laughs> what are our take homes here? What what do we know now about the negotiation of power in the early modern era in Northern Europe? So I think one of the main takeaways that the book is trying to show is that in order to understand uh, state formation in early modern Europe, we have to look beyond individual territories and their internal structures. This is normally how state formation is studied. You look at something like Prussia or you look at England and you look at, okay, how do they build internal institutions? How do they then regulate relations? How do they enforce their power in their various regions? This is, of course, very useful and can tell us a lot. But if we don't look at the way in which political authorities are relating across boundaries, if we don't look at the way in which they're creating these types of structures like alliances that unite authorities together, we miss a key factor that shapes how they are doing those types of internal state building, but also the way in which they are reacting and interacting with others outside of them. And I think the Dutch case in the empire shows this particularly well, and this is the idea of shared sovereignty. Um, that is in the title and that I talk about in here, that these authorities are are pooling, sharing their sovereignty together because they see benefits that they can gain out of it. And I think one of the really big takeaways for people in the 21st century is this idea of shared sovereignty is talked about a lot in scholarship on things like the European Union in particular. But it's often treated as like an invention of the 20th century, that all of a sudden the European Union is founded and then people go, let's share sovereignty. We've never thought of this before. But in actuality, this is so deeply rooted in European political culture that if we don't understand this, we don't understand the dynamics of contemporary alliances and we don't understand the ways in which contemporary alliances can also go horribly wrong, uh, the way in which they could potentially collapse. Um, so I think from the histor- there's a historiographical takeaway, and then there's also this larger takeaway um, that I hope people, especially those who study modern Europe uh, uh, politically and historically, that they would see uh, a takeaway or a value uh, in the work I've done on the early modern alliances. Right on. All right. So uh, and now you have completed this amazing, huge, difficult, dense book. Uh, what's next? What are you working on now? So. Um, I want to write about a person. 
Uh, I want to write about somebody. Uh, the, the first book is about corporate bodies. The second book is in many ways about corporate bodies as well, different types. Uh, but I, I do get into a lot of different individuals in the book and talk about a lot of different individuals. But I really want to get in the mindset of, of an individual. And so I discovered in um, the Landesbibliothek in uh, Stuttgart in southern Germany, this uh, journal of, or they're called in German Landsknechtführer, which is basically the leader of a mercenary company. Um, his name is Sebastian Schertlin, uh, who was born in the early uh, 16th century and died in the 1570s. And he wrote a 300-folio journal that is in the Landesbibliothek in Stuttgart. I've come across him since the first book. He's, uh, he operates in many of these different alliances as the leader of their military units. He's also a local nobleman in Swabia in southern Germany uh, who, is, who introduces the Reformation and as an, is an adherent of reform ideas, but also works for and cooperates with Catholic authorities. Uh, so I want to write a biography of Shatlin based off of the letters that he's written, which are voluminous and all over the place, and this uh, journal that I found in uh, Stuttgart. And not just about Shetland, the person, which of course will be one of the main focuses, but Shetland is a window into what it is like to live as a mercenary in the 16th century. Um, what it is like to continually cross these confessional boundaries, both personally and politically. And time-wise, he stretches from the early Reformation into this post-religious uh, peace era within the empire. So he provides a window, an opportunity to kind of evaluate the way in which these different eras that we oftentimes as Reformation historians categorize as separate and different from each other, the way in which they actually flow into each other uh, and, and the way in which impulses from one era shapes another era and how someone who lived across them actually understood these eras. Uh, so you're going to continue your work of like change, turning the lens a little bit and uh, reevaluating these things that we think we all know about sovereignty and the development of the state and and then, you know, how people interact. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that um, and I know your work, uh, Jana, is, is, is going in, in this direction. But one of the things that I'm interested about this is also ideas of masculinity. Um, because Shetland, of course, is this, this military man. He's writing this, this journal, which talks a lot about his experiences in war, but it also talks about his experiences with his family. Um, and there's a whole kind of subgenre of uh, military literature written by, by these kinds of mercenary leaders at the time um, that has been analyzed in a variety of different ways, but has never really been analyzed from the perspective of uh, gendered language or gender studies or ideas of masculinity. Uh, and so one of the things I'm always looking to do with new projects is try to expand into some new type of field. And I think this is where this project, just at the beginning of this project, but I think this is one of the areas this project is going to have to take me in order to understand the journal, is into debates and ideas about masculinity um, in early modern Europe, which, of course, is then also going to bring up issues of femininity um, mm -hmm. in early modern Europe as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the trope of the feminized other is the thing you're going to deal with. Yep. And we can talk about that as much as you like. I mean, not for the podcast, although I'm sure somebody, I'm sure a lot of people really care about the ideas about early modern masculinity, but uh, you and I can talk about that anytime. Yeah, um, absolutely. It is my favorite thing right now. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been such a delight. What a really fun conversation. And um yeah, I, I'm. I, it was great. Thanks so much for taking time with me. Well, thank you so much, Yana, for taking the time to talk to me. I really enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.